The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Order. You're listening to the Irish Times Inside Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, October the 19th, and you're very welcome to the weekly politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan, and before we start, do remember that you can find all our shows on irishtimes.com slash podcasts, where you can make sure you'll never miss a new episode by subscribing on iTunes. Regular listeners will know that we're always keen to hear your views and suggestions on what we should cover on this podcast. And today, we're actually picking up on an email from regular listener John Moriarty, who was looking at results of a poll carried out by Ireland Thinks, a polling company on behalf of our competitors over there in the Irish Daily Mail. John wrote as follows, uh, I quote, the headline of the profile piece made mention of capturing the views of, quote, Middle Ireland, unquote, voices supposedly drowned out in other forms of polling. I'm always very curious about what different people mean by Middle Ireland and who are the ordinary people whom this, this new group is hoping to hear from. Why are these people supposedly underrepresented in polls and in media commentary? Are political party pollers any better at accurately forecasting results? And is it easier to predict the outcomes on a regional or a national level. I'd be interested to hear an inside politics deep dive into polling and into, into how commentators gauge public opinion when asked about it. Thanks for that, John. Your wish has been fulfilled because we asked Kevin Cunningham to join us. Kevin's the man behind Ireland Thinks and he's also a lecturer in statistics at Trinity College Dublin and he used also to be the targeting and analysis manager for the Labour Party in the UK. We're also joined by Irish Times economics columnist Chris Johns and Sarah Barden from Our Political staff but I suppose to you first Kevin maybe you yeah. could account for yourself in this 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 particular so poll which, which, which aspect of this I guess in terms of um, I think one of the things was our political uh, pollsters better than the existing pollsters so my, my, my background would be um, working for the British Labour Party and then I worked for the Irish Labour Party and so I have a, I have a string of very successful elections I guess behind oh, well, my belt well, well done both. <laughs> yeah, thank you um but this started, I guess, um, out of experience in the in the UK system, where um, uh, famously, I guess, the UK general election, uh, basically, the, the the big public predictors kind of got it all wrong, I guess. Um, but internally, we had some idea of what was going to happen, although had to kind of keep a brave face to try and uh, to try and uh, move things to our advantage. Essentially, one of the one of the key differences, really, in terms of what we're talking about here, in terms of some people that are, I guess, underrepresented. It actually, it's actually more about who's overrepresented in uh, in opinion polls. So, typically, a, an opinion poll tries to represent the entire population, right? And it's very difficult to do so, um, because lots of people won't answer the phone. Lots of people, particularly younger people, are very unlikely to uh, be available on a landline or or mm-hmm. kind of traditional methods of actually uh, getting people to answer your polls. So typically when, when, when a pollster tries to find the right number of young people as befits the population, they tend to find the young people who are very, very engaged. And they'll all say that they're definitely going to turn out and vote. And they'll all say that they're going to vote a certain way. Typically, much more liberal um, or Labour, in, in this case, as in the UK. So if you go back to the last six general elections in the UK, apart from the 2010 general election, the Labour Party was overestimated um, by an average of 3%. 
It was only in 2010 that the Liberal Democrats were overestimated by 3%, but that was because of Clegmania, when that same cohort that would normally vote for the Labour Party actually decided to uh, not turn out again for the Liberal Democrats in that particular case. So what we're doing is we're trying to... Um, Rather than trying to estimate the entire population, just to jump on you, the oh, yeah. one question with that: Sorry. were the people who you weren't reaching, those younger demographics who weren't politically engaged or yeah. weren't liberal left, were they to the right of centre, or were they just people who don't vote at all? Uh, the people that you're not reaching are typically people that don't vote. Now, the reason why you end up with this distortion is because you end up waiting up the people that do respond. So you get all these young people who say they're definitely going to vote. You know, so so they all. They all say that they're going to vote. So when you add them into your sample, add them into your total population, you have this effective expected turnout of young voters of maybe 16, 70%, which we know doesn't happen. You end up equivalently, with, they end up kind of being overrepresented in the polls. And rel- in relative terms, they're opposite. They're polar opposite, which typically as older voters tend to be underrepresented. How do you mitigate against a problem like that? So what we do is we, instead of um, trying to fit our... our basically weight our population to the entire po- instead of trying to sample so that we're trying to estimate the overall population we just go to the voters which is much easier to get because they're much more likely to turn out so when we're so we know kind of we make estimates of what types of people are going to turn out and unfortunately in my case in 2015 it's amazingly consistent so in our 2015 election strategy we basically tried to break this idea of young people not voting unfortunately even though we knocked on twice as many doors as any election uh, previously, and had a, canned, had, an, had a person in Ed Miliband, although it was not popular with the general population, was quite popular with younger people. Um, we weren't able to kind of switch that mindset. And so my understanding is, going back a number of elections and looking at marked registers in the UK going back 10 years and 20 years, that actually the demographics are quite consistent of who is and who doesn't vote. And you actually can extrapolate that as well from aggregate level elections. Let me so ask you about, just about that, just to come back to that question about of, of the middle uh, which is yeah. a, a phrase which is used an awful lot, not least for the fact that it's generally, you know, the, the general perception is that elections in particular are fought and lost on the middle ground, that somewhere somewhere in the centre there is a group of voters who might be persuaded in one direction or another over the, co- over the course of a campaign on the basis of their own economic self-interest or mm-hmm. what they perceive is best for their kids or, yeah. or, or whatever else it might be. Is is that true? Is there a centre ground of whatever it may be, 10 or 15% of the population who, who are those floating voters? And further to that, in Ireland certainly there's a perception that they tend to be more urban and middle class. Yeah, so t- typically typically in normal elections, in a lot of studies that we've done, like in terms of experiments, you do some, you ask someone how they're going to vote, you send a bit of literature to them and they see if they've changed their mind after, right? Typically, the same demographic or group uh, is the most persuadable, right? And it's typically young families with kids. And it makes sense when you think about it, right? Because they haven't voted a certain way for a large number of elections. So typically, people's voting behaviour is quite consistent. If they voted a certain way in a previous election, they're more likely to vote that same way. You know, if you voted, let's say, for Margaret Thatcher for eight years, for eight elections in a row, it's very hard for you to change and to actually vote for someone else thereafter. A young family is very interesting because they often have moved to a new area. They don't understand the electoral context. It's often the first person that knocks on the door tends to be the person that they tend to vote for. So typically, it's a young family. Now, recently, in the UK and in the US and a lot of places right throughout Europe, that the big cleavages and big party loyalties have been breaking down. And so the swing voter in the UK, anyway, 
became a much older voter, people who were actually retired. And you could see how Labour and the Conservatives were fighting over this kind of UKIP switcher. This mass group of people had moved from Labour to UKIP on both sides, and Labour were coming out with these, um, you know, uh, although I tried to stop it, this kind of controls and immigration mug and all sorts of stuff to try and appeal to those groups. And that's, and that's very interesting. We might, we'll come back to, to, yeah. to, to Brexit in a, in a minute and the way perhaps that some of these, these, these older ideas about how these things work, you know, might be changing. But Sarah, I mean, this... This particular concept of the, the the squeeze middle, which emerged first in the UK, various attempts to define it in Ireland. Owen Harris was running around for years talking about the coping class, which is basically just another version of the same thing. It's basically the kind of people who Kevin is talking about, isn't it? Because it's uh, it's people within a certain income brackets who are probably at a point of highest pressure in terms of their outgoings, high mortgages, small children, all all that kind of stuff, running around, you know, 80 hours a week trying to trying to juggle lots of things. Uh, the media is very fond of them, it seems to me. Are, are, are the political parties as fond of them? Do the political parties see them as, as, as vital? Um, I think just, I suppose, to, to reference what you were saying there, I mean, people like you and I are fond of using the term squeeze middle, but they're very hard to define who the actual squeeze middle is. Um, I, Cliff Taylor did a piece uh, in the Irish Times in September where he, he, he looked at, I suppose, who what could be defined as a squeeze, squeeze middle. And he was making the point that a single person on €100,000 uh, couldn't be defined as a squeeze middle, but a family with an income of €100,000 with a mortgage and, and perhaps some children could be defined as a squeeze middle. Gross. Squeeze, yeah, Gross squeeze middle. Um, I suppose, yeah, the media are very fond of portraying um, or at least trying to identify the, the woes of the squeeze middle. For the political party, it's not so much a priority because the squeeze middle, um, albeit the ones that seem to be, you know, having the biggest strain on them, don't necessarily vote and they don't necessarily um, appeal to political parties. As we've seen in the le- in the last budget, um, political parties prioritised the woes and the plights of older people, knowing that in return, when the next election comes, those people will vote. Uh, the squeeze middle, whoever they are, I would identify them probably as... E- younger single people in their sort of late 20s, early 30s and then um, younger families who have been crippled with mortgages, childcare costs and, um, you know, crippling universal social charge. uh, um. So I think it's very hard to define but for political parties it doesn't seem like much of a priority because they're not easily identifiable. They don't vote um, and if, if for them, if they focus their attentions elsewhere on people like older people, they know that they'll see the benefits in, in due course. Chris, what's the economic perspective on this? Or is there one? Is this all just stuff that we make up to fill pages? And uh, uh, all of the above. Um, <laughs> the squeeze middle actually is, is, a, is a globally used term. It's, it's used in the States uh, as much as it's used in the UK and here. Um, and it's been defined in different ways. Um, it's often, from an economic perspective, defined in terms of the income distribution. You know, who are these people and how much do they earn? Michael Noonan, for example, has defined um, the squeeze middle in the Doyle um, as anyone, any household earning, in gross terms, between thirty and 70000 a year. Um, that's a very large group of people. Um, one third of people, one third of households in Ireland um, gross less than 27000 a year. One third gross more than 59,000 a year. So the, the middle, in terms of pure numbers, statistics, is the, peop- the households who earn between 20, 27 and 59,000. That's one third of Irish households. The average household earning figure, taking into account absolutely everything, 
um, obviously mostly wages, but also things like interest, dividends, to the extent that anybody has those sorts of things, and crucially, social transfers. The average is 50,000 per household. The median, which is a different statistical concept and a better one in this particular case, is 40,000 euros a year. So half the households in Ireland earn less than 40,000 a year, half the households in Ireland earn more than 40,000 a year, but most of them are congregated between, the well, one third of them are congregated between 27 and 59. Mr. Noonan's 30 to 70 would, would encompass even more than that. That's probably getting up for about half um, of the population. So you could so you go on and on about these things in terms of numbers and immediately people's eyes start to glaze over. It's oh, one, not mine. It's, not mine. It's, <laughs> it's much more fun to talk about, you know, people who are deprived, people who are this, and trying to put them into these categories. So inevitably, as a politician, you want to target them. So the first question to be asked, as we've already discussed, is which of these categories vote? An economist isn't well qualified um, to, to answer that question. Um, the, the complexities are enormous because, unfortunately, trying to categorize people in this way it, it ultimately is a fruitless task because within these groups, it's not homogeneous. It's very, very differentiated, very heterogeneous, um, as we've already heard. You know, if you're a, a somebody on a low income, but you don't have a mortgage and you don't have children, you're fine. But you can be on 100 grand a year and not be fine if you've got a very large mortgage, loads of children and loads of outgoings. Um, all of these numbers disregard wealth. Those are income figures. The wealth numbers are much harder to get at, but are probably tell as interesting a story as, as the income numbers. So it's a very, very complicated picture, one in which we, we end up waving our arms in the air. Politicians inevitably uh, make up stories around this, um, and but the complexity is enormous. Is it used as a shorthand for something which might be... Uh politically um, attractive to people or perhaps people might just feel that it resonates with their own experience, which is a cohort of the population who feel that their outgoings, the outgoings demanded of them by the state are very high in terms of the standard of living, which they're ultimately achieving uh, despite the fact that they're working their asses off, basically. I suppose that's the kind of shorthand version of it. Yeah, and I think that, you know, if you, if I talked about the numbers and um, various segments of the population. If you divide the, the population up into its various bits, economists and statisticians are fond of looking at the bottom 10%, the top 10%, and all points in between. I think you find that there are many people in all of those buckets that would say exactly that, that we've all been squeezed. And if you look at the numbers, um, it's true that they have. Um, but in a very interestingly different way throughout, since, since the crisis, we've had, a, you know, several budgets, seven or eight budgets. Um, the first ones were quite progressive. They took more from the high income buckets than they did from the low. And um, the last few have been quite regressive. They've taken away more from the bottom than they have from the top. Um, so there's been a, a change in the, in the way these budgets have, have been conducted. But if you look at the, the first austerity budgets that were brought in under previous administrations, they were the ones that hit the hardest. These, they were the ones that had the biggest numerical um, impact on people's budgets. And they took from everybody. But in the first two or three budgets, it was the top 10% in income. And you might say, of course, that that was wholly appropriate. But that's, that's what happened early on. The big hit was to everybody, but the biggest hit was to the high-income earners. So in a sense, the answer to your question is everybody feels squeezed. And I suppose the other part of it is that, what you know, well, two particular criticisms of the Irish taxation uh, system are, number one, that it's far too complex, but number two, that it hits people at 
average earnings much much harder and faster than is the case in 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 other in some other countries. And both both points are true. All all tax systems everywhere are ridiculously complicated, and the, the case for for simplifying them is is true as true here as it is anywhere else. And this is not a particularly Irish phenomenon. But the the the, the shape of the of the the tax curve in Ireland is is pretty different here. We, as you say, we have a number of very peculiar, almost unique features. The number of people who don't pay any income tax is very high. It's, it's over a third. Um, the, the, the rate at which you start paying the higher rate is way too low, most economists would argue. Um, and it is, a, it is a very narrow tax base. This is something that is increasing with every budget now. Um, the hated USC was mentioned. Um, and this is an emotional reason. The USC is a brilliant tax. It's a fabulous tax from an economist's perspective. There's nothing wrong with it at all. It's progressive. The more you earn, the more you pay. Everybody pays it. So, you know, to the extent that we are all in this together, um, it's a good idea. It simply replaced other tax. You know, there were health levies and youth levies and God knows what else that all used to exist that nobody used to complain very much about, or at least not nearly as much as we do about the USC. So it's become very emotional. And from um, a politi- political perspective, you know, you're absolutely right. It's the most progressive uh, form of taxation in this country. But from a political perspective, it's become the hated universal social charge. Yes. And it's on its introduction, it was labelled as a, a temporary measure yes. measured for the financial crisis. And so now that the financial crisis is over, the government have focused their efforts on abolishing the universal social charge when every economist and indeed economists within the Department of Finance are advising against doing it. It is unambiguously a bad thing to do from an economist's perspective. But politically, we know why they they are doing it. It's become the austerity tax. It's very very hard to, I remember in the Labour Party in Ireland, it's very hard to try and construct something to get rid of aspects of it, to help the squeezed people, if, if not the middle uh, without introducing something that's actually regressive, mm-hmm. if you get any, if you get rid of any part of the USC, it's very hard to do so in a in a progressive manner. Is the USC? Um, I'm going to insult a lot of people here now by suggesting that the USC is so hated because it's just so simple to understand and therefore it's visible, and that people just aren't bright enough or don't concern themselves enough with looking at their paychecks and and understanding that other elements of the tax code, for example, not adjusting bands for inflation and various other things like that, actually have far more effect than USC's. Yeah, have. well, I mean, I think your point is is absolutely true, even when you look at the tax on water I guess the water charges you know I mean that that's minimal tax you know but um, because it's so simple and such a new introduction I often thought that if the government wanted to actually not annoy people they could have just raised income tax they, and, and, and I think they would have gotten away with that much easier because it wouldn't have been as visible a change to people's paychecks in the same way that the water charges are so visible that um, if they actually increase this income taxes. I, I, I want to come back to the idea of polls and to John's original question because one of the things that struck me about, and I know that you probably asked some questions, but the Daily Mail may have framed them in, 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 in certain other kind, kinds of ways as well. Um, there was a question about social welfare and what people felt about social welfare, whether social welfare payments were appropriate. I think, and there were, there were questions also about whether was, there was such a thing as a right to housing in yeah, Ireland. Human rights. Yeah. yeah. What, what were the sort of results of those? So in both cases, it was... It was overwhelming, in particular demographic groups as well, uh, that people didn't believe it was a human right and people weren't in favour of, uh, I guess, not 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 in favour of social welfare, but more that did, did they feel that people in social welfare, whether it was too little, whether it was too much or the right amount, and, and very few people thought it was too little, even among supporters of the AAA and, you know, Sinn Féin. Um, yeah, what so was the actual wording of the question? It was about whether they thought... Uh, 
owning your own home was a was a was human a right. right or a an aspiration. But that wasn't quite quite the wording, was it? The wording was a right to housing rather than a right to home ownership. They yeah, would be two somewhat different things. I okay. think. Okay. Uh, right to owning your own home. I can't off the yeah, top. Yeah, I my think head, it was a right to housing. Actually. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if the que- I don't really think the question was that leading. I think a lot of people have an understanding of this whole debate about whether housing is a human right or not. And I think what was interesting, um, even from a, a progressive point of view, that if we are to have a progressive housing policy in relation to people that might potentially be unemployed, I think there's a certain demographic group, those who have... Uh, uh, mortgages and are massively in negative equity that they need to be brought in and they need to be told that this is actually okay we're going to look after you guys as well because you could see in the demographics quite unusually that people who are over 65 and the younger people were more in favour of this idea of a human right much more so than uh, the people in the de- in the middle sort of demographics sort of between typically between 40 and 50 and actually 30 and 40 who were probably felt far- hard done by because of I guess the the enormous cost of housing. Well, I suppose, yeah, and Sarah, I have some experience of doing that in, in other contexts on radio shows and, and on the dreaded internet sometimes as well, that when sometimes when issues come up of social protection, of helping people who are right at the bottom of, of society, whether it be with housing or with, you know, some kind of social welfare support of some sort, the people who are who, who feel most strongly against it and express those opinions most vociferously often preface them by the fact that they had to break their back to buy their own house and they're weighed down with a mortgage and now their taxes are being used basically to uh, to support these ne'er-do-wells. I'm mean, saying that, that that opinion I hear most strongly from people who characterise themselves as having small kids to raise, mortgages to pay and so on. Yeah, there definitely seems to be a feeling amongst the so-called squeeze middle that they've worked for everything and they've been punished also for everything so that they they essentially have got nothing in return which doesn't necessarily take account of what Chris was talking about that there are various social transfers you know which which people in that situation also can. yeah but I suppose it's what you came back to it's to come back to your earlier question it's it's a sort of simplistic way of looking at things um you know as you mentioned the universal social charge is easy to understand. Water charges are also easy easy to understand. To get into the complexities of the other sort of, uh, form of income tax is a little bit more difficult. So it's easier to hate the universal social charge, even though it may be a more progressive tax. It's easier for you to say, well, I was told in 2011 this was only an emergency tax and now it's still crippling my pay form and the introduction of water charges and, and so forth. I mean, it's, they're all quite, I suppose, simplistic ways of looking at things. And there definitely seems to be an opinion or an attitude towards um, those who are relying solely on social welfare, the people who are working hard and being crippled with mortgages and so forth, that they are subsidising the people who are on social welfare. I mean, just to come back to the to the issue of housing, and um, I think it, attitudes are changing so significantly in Ireland with regards to housing. Um, no longer is it an aspiration, or I suppose a, an aspiration for everybody to own your own home. I mean, that's that was certainly from from my parents era and on another people's era that was your aspiration you worked to buy your own home that's gone now from from seems to be from my generation because people, it's not achievable it's not achievable anymore i mean i've got friends who are in the uk working who always had an ambition to come home to live here to raise their families but to raise the deposit whilst paying rent in in london or in other places or indeed pay, paying rent in dublin it's unachievable now to raise that amount of money to pay to, to get a deposit under the central bank rules and now I suppose for a lot of people the biggest crisis for them 
is the rental crisis and the lack of action from the government on that perspective. Um, because the people of, of, of my generation, I hate using that phrase, but uh, you, you know, people who are in their kind of mid to late 20s and, generation and as well. early 30s, they don't want, the, like, they don't necessarily, you know, they don't know where their future lies. They're like, you know, I'm from Louth, I don't want to, I don't want to live in Louth. Whereas, um, I do eventually want to one day own my own home, but it's not going to happen while I live in Dublin because of the cost of the market here. So I think there are, well, the question might have been, you know, a right to housing um, is completely different to, I suppose, an entitlement for You see, that raises sort of interesting questions to me, Chris. I'm not sure whether you want to be brought in on this, but it strikes me that this, a lot of this talk about um, about the middle and about silent majorities and things. A silent majority, I think, was a phrase coined by Richard Nixon in the in the late in the late nineteen sixties, and it appealed to a certain a certain political demographic, and it was essentially used more by parties on the centre right <coughs> or or or, conser- or or conservative parties. And uh, and then if you look at the success of Thatcherism uh, in the nineteen eighties, was also based upon appealing to people who uh, saw themselves as being aspirational, who were stepping up perhaps from working class or skilled working class backgrounds, owning homes for the first time, sending their children to third level education. If there are other changes happening, like the kinds of ones that Sarah was talking about about here, are they are they kind of quite are they just reflecting a particular problem at the moment with the housing market or is it possible that they're reflecting a, some, some deeper social economic shift? It's probably a bit of both. And I don't necessarily think that the, the, the move away from this all-encompassing desire to own your own house is necessarily a bad thing. Um, it's quite European. Um, it's, it's more typical in Europe that uh, you would um, perhaps at best own a small apartment in the city and then have some something out in the countryside is, is, is quite Parisian um, and, and other cities. Um, as an economist, I, I sometimes, looking at my own personal experience, because um, I'm not of the generation that, that uh, is, 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 is without, without um, a house in one's 20s and 30s, this desire in your 20s, can I remember it well, t- you know, to get a mortgage and saddle yourself with this lifelong debt I look back now and wonder how rational and how sensible that actually was. And if I made some other choices, would it have been, from a lifestyle point of view, slightly better? Because one of the things that owning your own home does, first of it makes you quite immobile. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that isn't such a good thing. And so I think that it, it's, there are healthy aspects to this. And I know that it's deeply ingrained in our culture that we must own our own houses because we must be allowed to hit a nail into the wall without a landlord shouting at us and all these sorts of things. But I think that there are some, you know, I think it's actually um, got, got some good aspects as well as well as negative. The the broader question you raise about whether or not it's all linked, I think is what you're saying, an, an aspiration and whether there is a squeeze middle or a, a squeeze group of people where aspiration is no longer appropriate because we're not making any kind of progress economically. And the statistics to an extent back that up because going back to that median level of income that I talked about earlier on in an Irish context, in many countries it's been static for an awful lot of people for an awful long time now and you couple that with the observed growth of measured inequality within countries and I think this is what's producing some of these changes that you're describing. Um, It's lack of growth um, which I think uh, is something that is going to have to change. uh, governments have it, have it within their power to do something about this, if they so choose, to do something about growth, far more than they, they're willing to admit. Um, and luckily for us, the inequality issue that is present in countries like the UK and the United States is far less 
actually, because we've talked a lot in, in my statistical discussion about gross incomes. When you look at the Irish distribution of incomes after social transfers, relatively speaking, we're a pretty equal society. We have an awful lot of social transfers. The IMF, uh, the OECD has stated that we have one of the most um, biggest set of social transfers in the developed world. There are... Uh, I've always found that an interesting statistic because it because it begs a couple of questions as far as I see. One of these is why does why does the state have to intervene so aggressively in Ireland to to uh, to address what are underlying inequalities, which presumably is due to high levels of 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 unemployment or people who are in some sense dependent on the state, and presumably also very low levels of wages at the lower at, at the lowest tier of wages. So first of all, why is Irish society structured that way? Um, it, it's not that different to other places. It, it's not that we have to do these transfers. It's just that historically we have chosen politically to do these transfers. So it's not that the underlying inequality is worse, that, that we have to do more to do it. It's just that we, we, address, it, we address it. No, we probably, better. towards the more unequal s- scale of things, in that we look like a UK or US income distribution type country, very, very broadly speaking, but mm. we're not an outlier by any stretch of the imagination when it comes to our pre-tax pre-distribution incomes. But historically, where we have ended up through all of these successive budgets is that we have made made choices, explicit choices, to take more from people with income than other countries do and give more in social transfers than other countries do. And does that then mean that uh, in the United States, Mitt Romney's famous 47% of people... Takers. takers, uh, I think he said 49, actually. 49% Mm -hmm. indeed. If that's that's in any way close to the truth in the United States, which is a much more unequal Mm. society than Ireland, does that mean that, that... um, probably a majority of people in the in in this state have a vested interest in in state support and state supports being maintained or indeed increased. Yeah, and again, you have to delve into the complexity complexities of it. Um, it isn't forty nine percent in the states to the extent that you want to measure these things sensibly. But if you if you look at the two big social transfer programs in the states, that they are essentially to do with Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, which is their equivalent of, of our state pension system. And um, well, mostly that's all about old people. There's an age demographic thing going on there. Um, and uh, the, the, the state pension in the States doesn't compare well to ours. So to the extent that these people are takers, it's not 49%, it's less. And to the extent, the amount of money that they're getting relative to what we pay, for example, our pension, state pension arrangements are much more generous than they are in the UK or the US. Mm, yes. Let me come back to something which you touched on earlier on, Kevin, which is that the idea that um, that Brexit raised, and which we're seeing in the United States to some example, to some extent also right now, which is the idea that people vote or think of themselves as voting entities for other reasons than just purely economic ones. We tend very often to look at these things through a demographic, economic prism. What you know, where which which income percentile is somebody in, and that's going to drive their decisions. It's not the only issue, is it? And when people look at, for example, the Trump vote in the United States at the moment, it's, sometimes it's lazily caricature as a dispossessed white blue-collar vote. But in fact, the evidence shows that it's not necessarily that. So there are other factors at play, racial tensions, uh, in, perhaps some of the insecurities which Chris is talking about. But there, there's other things than just, you know, where you fall within the income do- or the economic demographics. Yeah, in the research I've done, the, the thing I uh, narrowed down to is often if you don't have that much money in the first place, the economic concerns actually aren't as big. I know that sounds quite controversial, but in some sense, I think uh, if you broke society up into 
two types of people, right? The people who have occupations and careers and people who have jobs. So people who you might meet at a party and might say that, oh, I'm a doctor, I'm a lawyer, I'm a solicitor. And people who say you meet at a party and might say, I support Man United, I support Shamrock Rovers or whatever. You know, if you broke it down into those two areas, you can kind of quickly see that actually there's a value in community and the lifestyles and the, the social interactions that people have with one another, right? And globalization has actually disrupted that. And it's uh, and everyone approaches um, policy these days from a purely materialist sort of financial perspective. And I often think that people, particularly in the east of England, um, and people, uh, I guess, sort of Trump supporters, kind of uh, have a certain value, let's say, on their local community and the decline of their communities over time. And you could actually see a little bit of that here, although the response was obviously quite different. You know, the one of the main motivations, as I see it, in the most recent general election here was not, you know, this, uh, that the fact that maybe uh, USC, cutting USC on behalf of Fine Gael was a little bit rash or whatever. But actually, if you look at the vote shares of, as it occurred here in Ireland, Fine Gael only lost... They lost maybe 6% in the Dublin constituencies on average, but they lost about 13 in the rural constituencies where unemployment, granted unemployment, was uh, significantly higher than it had been prior to the recession, but also emigration had happened on vast scales and lots of people and lots of communities and GAA clubs were kind of struggling, basically. So rural communities in Ireland have struggled. Similarly, rural communities in the US are struggling. The two big fa- biggest factors behind Trump support are actually urban-rural divide and... Uh, I guess, white and black. So does that mean, obviously, there was a return to Fianna Fáil to some extent in those rural constituencies, but the, the, the main factor that you saw was the was uh, independent candidates of, of one sort or another, locally-based independent rural candidates getting elected for the first time in many Yeah, of I mean, if you look at Fianna Fáil's vote... So are they are Trumps then, I suppose, is what I mean. Yeah, I mean, certainly, actually, if you take bringing back these Ireland thinks questions the people who are typically on the most right end right wing end of the spectrum if you I mean a lot of these questions the responses when you ask people what party they're voting for they line up almost perfectly left to right independents people who are voting for independents are typically always to the right of Fine Gael who are the most right wing political party so people who are voting for independent candidates are probably the most socially define right in this instance so in terms of the question of whether housing is a human right or an aspiration, the people who are most likely to say it's an aspiration will be the people who would vote independent typically. Or in terms of that welfare question, uh, whether um, whether uh, welfare spending is too much, too little, or the right amount, they're the most likely to say uh, it's too much. I think there's an important difference between Ireland, the United States and, and the UK in terms of the economic experience and all of this disappointment being caused by, you mentioned globalisation. Um, I, I think there are many aspects to this. One is that the globalisation has caused all this disaffection story is a little bit lazy. Um, it's part of the truth, but the truth is much more complex than that. A lot of these manufacturing jobs that everybody say has been lost, these heavy industrial jobs that have been lost to globalisation have actually been lost to machines rather than to China. Some have been lost to China, but it's, it's automation which is a global phenomenon um, rather than globalization. And that's, that's a, because it's got a very different cause. The, 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 the way in which you deal with it has to be different. But it's very easy for politicians to say, it's all globalization, nothing to do with me. I can't do anything about that. And then, but unfortunately, in the UK, they are. They're now starting to blame immigrants as part of the anti-globalization thing. So you do need to be very careful. We've been quite lucky here. Because to the extent that it, it is either globalization losing jobs to China or, as I would argue, as much losing them to machines, to automa- 
automation, we've not had a big industrial base from which we've had to lose those jobs. Mm. So that disaffection, these these communities in in the northeast of England, um, in in South Wales, an area that I know where the mines all closed, all all that sort of thing, to to a large extent, we haven't had to deal with. So our disaffection is, to the extent that we have it, is somewhat different to uh, the UK and the US. Let me ask you then, Kevin, about that, because your experience with, with, with labour in particular, and Chris mentioned immigration, and I've seen I've seen the argument made in the United States um, that that some of the reaction, some of the nativist reaction, uh, as it's characterised for, for Trump, for example, is a direct result of the fact that uh, the number of uh, that the proportion of the population in the United States right now who were not born in the United States is at its highest level since the 1920s when was, you had the last wave of kind of American nativism. So that there's a direct correlation be, be, between those two things. And obviously within that there are certain kinds of uh, ironies or paradoxes which is that the highest vote for nativists tend to be in areas where there aren't actually high numbers of immigrants. But but there does seem to be an underli- underlying correlation between the two. And the same was the case surely in, in the United Kingdom with Brexit as well, that that migration has some kind of an impact on the way people think about their identity and how they express that when they when they come to vote. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I, I guess in, in, in the UK that the area of the UKIP were doing incredibly well was in around East Anglia um, and kind of in the eastern region, uh, typically where they'd have a lot of kind of, I guess, cotton-picking type, very high, a lot of manual labour where there was a lot more uh, Eastern European migrants moving there. So there, there is some relationship between the prevalence of migration and uh, this sort of sentiment, yeah. But does migration certainly. also, as well as whatever its imp- economic impact may yeah. be, and it may well have an impact on, on some people, yeah. it's, it's, seen as, it's, it's also seen as a, as a symbol of a society which is changing in the way that people don't want to yeah, see yeah, it. No, it's a visible, it's yeah. a visible it's expression. It's a visible thing. Uh, although coming back to Chris's point about uh, technology, it's probably in most cases just technology that's changing things. Not just not just in terms of the jobs that people are losing to technology, but also the way society is being structured. I mean, everyone is relying, no longer relying on their neighbour for various different things, but now, now we can rely entirely on our little smartphone for a lot of things that we're going to do in life, and so we're becoming far more individualist, and so these sorts of communities and the strength that they would often have relied on are kind of, it's kind of weakening, I guess, as well. Sarah, I do wonder, um, kind of should wrap it up pretty soon, but I just wonder about the Fine Gael Manifesto, and indeed the whole Fine Gael approach to the last election, was clearly intended to target this amorphous, ill-defined, hard-to-put-your-finger-on group of people um, who focus groups and research and their consultations, I gather, with the Tory party in the United Kingdom, had told them would respond well to a certain... A certain set of proposals. And that did not happen. And we actually have now ended up through the complicated uh, um, processes of, of the Oireachtas with a government which has actually swung ultimately quite far in the other direction. So what does that tell us about the Irish electorate and these particular impulses in Ireland? Well, I would argue that the Irish electorate is is somewhat unique in a sense that, um, similar to what Chris and Kevin have been talking about in the UK and the US, um, there is rarely in Ireland, uh, voters rarely look at the national picture. They rarely look at the national economic situation. Often it comes down to what have you done for me and what can you do for me? Um, I think in Irish politics, the fact that 
politicians are so heavily relied upon for distribution of medical cards to fix a pothole in a road. You wouldn't see, you don't see that in other countries. Um, and often when it comes down to voting, that's the sort of things that reflect their voting arrangements. So as Kevin mentioned, in the last general election, rural Ireland um, sort of turned their back somewhat on Fine Gael and went back to Fianna Fáil and somewhat to the independent candidates. Um, that solely came down to a perception that they had been neglected by the government because of the um, catch line of Fine Gael, let's keep the recovery going. They told everybody there was a recovery. So if people hadn't felt it, they were asking, why haven't I felt it? Why hasn't Fine Gael left me, let me feel this recovery? When in truth, there was a little, there was a recovery in the economics, but it, it hadn't been reflected or it had, certainly hadn't been felt by everybody in the population. But the more that Fine Gael spoke about a so-called recovery, the more the people expected it to be returned to their pocket. And so when it wasn't, rural Ireland looked towards Fianna Fáil, whose election manifesto was rather simple, a fairer Ireland for all. And it just shows you, I suppose, Fine Gael's attempt to shove this recovery down people's throats made uh, Fine Gael, made voters turn their back on them. Yeah, I, I think one of the really <coughs> interesting things I've seen in some of the analysis on uh, this uh, by uh, Michael Marsh in particular um, was that um, when you compare unemployment levels from the height of the recession down to basically the election as it happened in 2016, rural areas, every region kind of benefited pretty much the same. Like the, the fall in unemployment was pretty much parallel across all the regions, right? But the only difference was the actual, while the recovery was fairly equal, it was the recession which uh, created massive inequalities that hadn't been there before. So in before the recession occurred, almost every region in Ireland had pretty much the same, very low un- level of unemployment. But when the recession occurred, that just had this. We created these massive disparities, and then when on, when when we when the country started to recover, those disparities were maintained. There, but they were well. Every region benefited. They benefited in a kind of a parallel way. They kind of benefited the same amount. So, we created certain differences between the regions, and those differences are still exist now. And that's why when you look at a lot of the work, a lot of the stuff that you're saying exactly is absolutely borne out in all the stats that people's perception of how the recovery has occurred is very different and that dictated who they voted for and in particular people in rural Ireland didn't benefit to the same extent because of frame of reference. I mean that's an interesting point from both of you and I I, I hesitate to to disagree with two such esteemed commentators but I'm always a bit suspicious Chris when people say Ireland is unique and Ireland is different and Ireland is somehow you know that's that's led us down some pretty you know wrong roads in the past is it really it's just a small average Western European country yeah yeah to to an extent yes There, there are some different characteristics and and, and it it wasn't an Irishman that that said that all politics are local. Sure. Well, he was an Irish-American, actually. Mm. (laughs) On that note, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much indeed to Chris, Kevin and Sarah for joining us today. And that's it for this edition of Inside Politics. Thanks to our guests, Kevin Cunningham, Chris Johns and Sarah Barden. Thanks again to John Moriarty for coming up with the idea for this week's show. But uh, thanks also to our producer, John Casey and engineer JJ Vernon. And remember, you can mail me with good ideas at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter at hlinehan. But until the next time, goodbye and thanks very much indeed for listening. 